5, verse 27, Jesus continues his analysis and explanation of the way that the law uh, works, the way, that it, the way that the disciple of Jesus ought to understand it. And so he moves on to the second command, the, the first uh, command that he had to deal with, had to do with murder and anger. And so now he moves on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Lord, we have come to hear from your word and we have come to a remarkable text. I think every time I have heard this read, there has been some quick and immediate apology Jesus couldn't possibly mean we hear, that we actually cut off our hands and pull out our eyes and then uh, moving on quickly to to some other subject, Uh, the meaning of the image that you've left with us, that your son gave to us, Father, uh, is is avoided. We pray that, that we would hear Jesus in his own words speak of the seriousness of temptation. And that that we would hear that he is proposing radical surgery for those prone to sin. Father, it is an unpopular thing to say that, that sin is or that judgment will come. Or that anything that we feel needs to be tamped down and pushed away and restrained if it is not consistent with your will and your way. But you are the God who is there and who created all things. And we may think that we define you, but we do not. If every single person in this room, everyone in Maryland, everyone in the United States, if everyone in this hemisphere were to hold their breath and stomp their feet, and declare that you are different than you say you are, you would not be intimidated or bothered. You would not break a sweat. You would not change. You are who you are. And as our creator and sovereign Lord, you have a right to demand of your creatures that we live in a particular way. Father, as we hear your word and we are confronted with our own failure, I pray that the the sense of despair that we feel looking at the sinfulness of our own soul would turn to joy as we see the beautiful treasure of the gospel. The foulness of our sins makes the pristine beauty of the gospel shine. And I pray that we would see Jesus 
as our remedy and guide and friend. Father, as we turn to the word, we think of our brother Keith, who is in the hospital now, confined to his bed until Tuesday when the surgery will take place. Father, we pray that all things uh, would work together so that Keith is restored. As Paul said, it is good to go and to be at home with the Lord, but it is better for the church if he remain. And we say the same of our brother Keith and his care for missionary kids throughout the world and the teams that he leads to provide uh, VBSs and, and training and relief to parents and kids alike throughout the world for Wycliffe. And we say, Lord, to you, our good Father, who we can come to and ask for anything in faith, we say that we ask that, that this would be a success and that you would restore him to his feet and that you would allow him to travel again and that many would be encouraged and won to you because of his ministry. We thank you for him. We thank you for Elizabeth and we pray your grace on them. Father, speak to us now, we pray from your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I am going to attempt to tell a joke. <laughs> See, I know. I know what makes you guys laugh. At least, uh, you know, acknowledging my attempts at humor. So um, uh, I'm, I'm so tempted just to make the joke walk on all fours to tell you what's funny about it and then tell you the joke, but I'm not going to do that. A guy goes into the doctor's office and, uh, and he says, Doc, I just, I don't, I don't feel right. I don't feel good. And the doctor takes a look at him and he's got um, a, a carrot stuck in one ear. He's got um, some, some broccoli shoved up his nose. He's got a, a banana stuck in the other ear. And he's got a grape stuck in the other nostril. And the doctor looks at him and says, oh, I know what your problem is. You're not eating right. <laughs> Uh, on the surface, right, it's funny because he's got stuff stuck in his face, right? But, but, but the deeper problem is if the guy doesn't know how to eat, then he's going to starve to death, right? The, 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 immediate, the immediate funny thing is, is the, the image and the, and the, and the punchline. But, but if you think about it long enough, there's a, there's a more extreme situation that exists here. Now, how could a guy get that old without understanding how to eat right? I don't know. It's just a joke. Anyway, what we see in the scriptures as, as Jesus lifts up the seventh commandment and, and brings that to the fore in his teaching about the law, we, we may think, oh, this is just a command or a, a discussion of sin, specifically adultery and lust. That's what we, that's what we might think. But to, to stop there is to miss, I think, the grander point that Jesus is making here. Notice that Jesus begins. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Right? The human Male and female were created to exist in a marriage relationship, and that is the boundary of the sexual relationship. Male, female, limited to marriage, a, a committed covenant contract between two lifelong partners. 
And to go outside of that bond is to commit adultery. This is what was going on in the culture at the time. The rabbis, many of them, were teaching their disciples, you can fulfill the seventh commandment. You can do it. All you need to do is make sure that you never commit adultery and you're good. Check it off on your box. You have succeeded. But they are missing the point. They are limiting it to the the physical. Now this is an extremely serious sin in the New Testament. Worthy, God tells us in Leviticus chapter 20 of death. Leviticus 20 verse 10, this is under the old covenant within Israel. This is the law. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... By the way, this includes women committing adultery with the husband of their neighbor. The the command written one way applies to all situations. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. You can see how uh, throughout biblical history and the timeline that um, this might not have been practiced firmly and fairly, right? You recall in John 8, they bring the woman caught in adultery before Jesus. And they say, what should we do with her? And where is the man, right? They, they, they brought her, they didn't bring him. They're, they're not consistent in their application. Jesus, though, points out that, that the problem that is evident and is seen in adultery is just the fruit It's just the the visible external action of which the root is the greater problem. And that's where he's going to go next. The internal desire problem of which adultery is only the fruit. What does God say to Samuel when he goes to pick out a king? right? He goes to fill his horn with anointing oil, right? And, and so he goes to the, the, the house of Jesse, and Jesse lines up his seven sons, right? He had eight. He had one that he didn't call in. And, uh, and, and, and so Samuel looks at the boys, and he looks at the oldest, strongest, handsomest, most intimidating warrior-like son, and says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And what does God say to Samuel, he says, no, no. You look on the outward appearance. You're judging by the external, but God looks at the heart. And so we see the connection here. Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But then he moves on to the, the real problem, the, the depth of the problem. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I want to make a connection here between the, the, the fruit and, and the root which produces it. Look at, um, in, in the book of, uh, I have not recorded the chapter number, so this is somewhere, uh, I say this uh, with with. Uh, confidence because 
in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, somewhere God has said, and then he quotes a verse of scripture with no intent of providing chapter, verse, or even author. Anyway, um, it's in the book of Job. This is what, what Job says. He says, defending his own rightness and righteousness, and he was right to defend his righteousness because he had done nothing wrong. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Speaking of lustful intent, he says, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? How could I commit this sin of lust knowing that, that God sees me and judges me? Then in verse 7, Job goes on to say, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. He's talking about judgment coming on him, right? I sow the crops in the spring. That's when we plant, right? In planting season, that's probably a safer way to say it. But then when they grow up and they're ready for harvest, I will have been judged and be dead and somebody will be bringing in the sheaves as the old-timey Baptists used to sing, right? I won't, I won't be there if, I have, if I've committed a sin. But notice what he says there, if my heart has gone after my eyes. See the connection there? Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife be a servant in another's house. The, the physical breaking of the seventh commandment occurs because first the eye has considered and contemplated and the heart has engaged. The heart has pursued. The heart has followed. What we see Jesus doing is not expanding the command or changing the extent of God's desire for the way human beings would behave. Instead, what he's doing is he, is he is saying, you think that because you have not committed adultery that you have somehow risen to the standard of being righteous in the sight of God. Listen, recall that the scripture teaches that the law is not given so that we could look at it and say, here's how I just obey God and be right and get to heaven. That's not how it works. The law exposes our sinfulness to us and teaches us, Galatians chapter 3 says, that we need a savior. It's a schoolmaster designed to lead us to Christ. Because every single human being ought to look with full uh, gaze into the law and say, I see the depths of my sin. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the next verse, he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about how the, 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 what the connection is here. The, the physical act, the eye and the heart. Let's, let's connect the three. Jesus is pointing out here that the 10th commandment, if it is violated, leads to the breaking of the 7th. Okay, that's clear, right? You got that? No. The seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. What's the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It is 
coveting, which begins where? With the eyes. and proceeds to the heart, which then results in the breaking of the commandment. That's what Jesus is saying here. You might think you've got it all under control because you've never physically violated the seventh commandment. But if you look with lustful intent, you covet and you break the command in your heart. What what is happening here is not just a a sin of action, but a a sin of the omission of the right. Uh, A sin of unbelief, a sin of, of disobedience and refusing to embrace the standard. When, when covetousness arises in our hearts because of what we see with our eyes, we need to stop it because it will proceed to action. What does the book of James say in chapter 1? I'm going to go there because I don't have it right in front of me, but I thought about it. I thought, I need to put this verse in my message, and then I didn't. James says that we ought not... To say when we're tempted that God is tempting us because the temptation comes from within. This is James chapter 1 verse 13. In 14 it says each person is tempted when he is, in lured, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin what is fully grown brings forth death. That's what we see fully grown is the the breaking of the seventh commandment, the violating of it. But it comes through the gate of the breaking of the tenth commandment. When we look down below the surface to the root of our problem, the problem that, that rises up every morning when we wake, when we, when we look at the root of the problem, when we are suddenly confronted with the, with the truth of God's holiness, the problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart wants what it wants, and it needs to be battled and controlled. Solomon says this. I wonder which Solomon said this. Was it the young Solomon who saw the wreck that his father made of his kingdom? Because of his sin, or was it the old, worn out, tired, idolatrous Solomon who had, who had failed horribly and looked back at his life and said, look at what I've done. What have I done? Solomon says this in Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Think about the need for water in an ancient city and how they would build the city around their water source and protect it. If the enemy could find the source of water and cut it off, the city would die. If the enemy could poison the water, then then the people would die. You guard and protect the springs because they are life. Without water, we die. The life of the believer, the life of the human being is in their heart and we need to keep it and guard it. But the heart is wayward. It wanders, right? Here's my heart, Lord, we sing in the hymn. Take and seal it. It's, it's prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. That's the way the lyrics go. What is, is it Hank Williams Jr. who says, sings that song, Your Cheating Heart? You know that? The, the heart wanders. It just it moves. We need to, to guard it, protect it, 
guide it, lead it. This is a theme in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 8.14. God tells the people he's, he's going to lead them into the land, right? You'll recall the, 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 the pattern of biblical history here, right? God brought a generation up out of the wilderness. He brought them to the border of the promised land. He said, trust in me. I'll bring you in. They refused to trust Moses. And then 40 years, nothing but sand and funerals as they all die. Only Joshua and Caleb enter into the land. Moses himself has to die. But as, they, as Moses is preparing to leave, he preaches the law a second time. That's the meaning of the, the title of the book, Deuteronomy. He shares the law with that new generation and says, you're about to go up into the land, right? You're the faithful ones. Don't make the same mistakes that your fathers made. Hold tight to the Lord. Moses says this to the people in Deuteronomy 8.14, Beware lest you say in your heart. We, we would say, don't let this thought invade your mind. Like, don't, don't let this thought creep through and, and take over. This is, beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Right? God is the one who brings you into the land and lets you live in houses that you didn't build and eat from fields that you didn't plant. Don't let it occur to you. Guard yourself from this thinking that, that you're tough and mighty and your military force won the land. Watch it. Guard your heart. Now, let me, let me say something about what Jesus is saying here. This is not just a text about sexual purity. This is a text about everything. This is about everything. Go back to the Ten command, Tenth Commandment. Right? Exodus 20, 17. Notice where it starts. It doesn't start with, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It starts, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Right? Think about what we're presented with on TV constantly. Right? I don't know if you've got Netflix. I might be... Just like, I know a bunch of you do, but like, aren't there a limited, uh, like it seems like an unlimited number of television shows that are showing you everybody else's stuff? <laughs> do you remember, what's that guy's name? Robin Leach. I think it was spelled L-E-A-C-H, but it's like, you know, can you imagine him, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he was, his show was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, right? And what he was doing was telling you, look at what this guy's got and look at what you don't have. And you turn off the TV and you're like, I just feel miserable. Why don't I have that? Look at that guy. And you start to think like that guy is a complete and total goofball. How does he have all that stuff? <laughs> I look at some of the pop stars that are on Twitter and you see the things that they write and you think, how is that person so rich? And then you call them all kinds of names related to their intelligence in your brain. How did they get there? Why do they deserve that? The commandment is watch out for that. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife right? Or his right-hand man. Or next, his female servant, right? His secretary. Don't covet his ox, right? That's his work truck. When your neighbor pulls up in, in the car that he's been given by his work and you're like, man, look at that fancy thing he drives around in. 
free car, no mileage, unlimited gas, right? Easy pass right there on the dash, never has to pay a toll, gets to use it on the weekends. What is up with that? You're coveting his ox. You are. Right? Your neighbor's out there with a new weed eater, and you're like, look at that thing. Don't covet his donkey. That's not like an animal that kicks people, right? I mean, donkeys do that, but that's his fancy car. Kings rode around on donkeys. Don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. Don't covet any of the stuff. Because, because the root, it, it comes through, through, through the, the seeing, and then the heart the desire begins to interact with the vision of the stuff and says, you should have that. Don't you deserve that? Don't you want that? And that unchecked leads to sinful action, whether it is theft or murder or lying or adultery or whatever else comes from desire out of control. So Jesus prescribes a response. If you've looked at a woman with lustful intent, he says, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, on the human scale, they are not the same. Any more than, than looking at, at, at somebody and saying, oh, I hate that guy, is the same as murdering them, right? There's, there's a difference between a sin internally of the heart and a sin externally in the world. And we ought to remember that when we, when we look at other people's situations and, and we judge them and think about, about how we're to treat them. They are, they are not the same. But from God's economy, they are all deviations from what is right and what is good and what is holy. And he is too pure to stand any sin in his presence. And all sin needs to be judged if any sin will be judged. And so we just, we need, we need to, to dig it out at the root. We need, to, we need to take care of it. So Jesus provides a, a response then. This is what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. The, the word there causes you to sin. Other Bible translations translate it uh, causes you to stumble. The, the word there is stumbling block, right? What, it, what is a stumbling block? It's a, either a, a hidden rock or a tripwire. It could be a, a pit that's been dug and some, some, uh, some branches and leaves put over it. What robbers would do back in Jesus' day is they would create a pit and, and you would fall into it, not completely 10 feet into it, but you would, you would fall over and like, you know, bang your face or something on the ground and then you'd be laying there like, oh, what happened? And then they would jump on you and take your stuff. That's a, that's a stumbling block. Well, we're on vacation up in upstate New York. Um, we, we rent this little cabin, you know, it's a little tiny place. And, um, and there's not a lot of stuff in there. You know, it comes with like one pot to put on the stove and no door stops and a bunch of stuff that like you have around your house. And so I get a rock from outside every year and I, put, I, I wash one rock and I put it on the napkin so that they don't blow away because there's no napkin holder, 
Um, and I take another rock and I put it on the floor so that we can hold the door open because sometimes when we're, when we're cooking in there, the room gets warm. So I put this rock on the floor, right? And then the boys come in late when it's dark and we're asleep, right? I think it's the second night we're there. Kid walking in the house, all of a sudden I hear, ow! <laughs> you found the rock, right? There it is. That's a stumbling block, right? Now, the first instinct of the kid is, I'm going to take this rock, I'm going to throw it out the door. But they know that dad wants it there to use it as a doorstop sometime tomorrow, so you can't get rid of it. But the logical thing, right, if there is a, a hole in the path or a, a block in the way or a tripwire or something that's going to trip you up and mess you up, what you need to do is to remove that, to get it out of the way. So this is what Jesus says. Because this sin of adultery, what is, what is on the table, what he is considering, because it begins with the eyes and then moves to the heart, here's his prescription. Tear out your eye and throw it away. Now imagine if I wasn't here this morning and we had a guest preacher. And he just came in and he said, folks, kids, you know, if, if, you're, if you have an electronic device in your home and that causes you to sin, whether it's to be mean to someone or to ignore your mom when she says it's time for dinner, what I want you to do is to go out in your backyard and get a rock and smash it. And then he moved on and you're like, <gasps> like I paid money for that thing. Like, don't do that. And then you get home and your kid's already done it. You would send me an email, wouldn't you? That was irresponsible. Pastor Keith, don't ever invite that guy back. Jesus doesn't ever fix this, folks. He doesn't fix it. He says, pluck your eyeball out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I texted my pastor and I said, we are plucking out eyeballs and cutting out hands. This is my mentor out in Pennsylvania. Tomorrow at harvest, we're cutting off hands and plucking out eyes. And he said, save the extra parts. <laughs> Jesus doesn't ever say, oh, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically here. Because he wants the image to live in your mind. The sin of covetousness that would lead you to go outside of the bounds of your marriage and to ruin your family and to violate the bond of, of marriage and sanctity that you have with your wife is of such an extreme nature that in the Old Testament it was condemnable by death. But Jesus prescribes cutting it off at the root, gouging out your eyeball. Do you have the materials to provide this surgical operation at home, in your kitchen? Do you have the tools in your shed that you might need to cut your hand off? Look, let's just not move on quickly and say, it's only metaphorical, Keith. Let's get a move on here. Like, this is crazy talk. Yes, it is crazy talk to think that, that we would not restrain ourselves from, from sinning in such a way that, that, that our, our sinful acts would drag us down to hell. It is better, Jesus says, to go into heaven 
with one eyeball or with no eyeballs than to be thrown into hell perfectly healthy. Boy, that's heightening the definition of the extremity of sin, isn't it? He says, metaphorically, not speaking of literal physical self-maiming, but of ruthless, extreme, moral self-denial. He says, close the eye gate. Close the, or, or, or cut off, restrain the sinful actions which are, which are growing up in your life, which would lead you to this sin. He's speaking not of self-mutilation, but of spiritual, the word is mortification. Not a simple refusal and saying, I will never, ever, ever do that again, but starving the desire in yourself that is contrary to God's will. Refocusing your attention and moving yourself into action. John Stott, the Christian scholar who's gone home to be with the Lord, says, Jesus is saying to go around as if you are blind or if you are lame. I cannot sin with my eyes. Why? Because I have gouged them out and I will not give myself the pleasure because of what it will look like in my soul. I won't linger. By the way, let me say something. There's nothing wrong with looking at another woman and saying, she's beautiful. If there was something wrong with it, God would have made women not beautiful, right? It's another thing to then say, I'm going to turn on the video recorder and hold on to that, right? Or what would it be like to, and, and complete the sentence? There's, there's a difference. So you don't have to be what they would call a bleeding Pharisee. These are guys who, who didn't want to, to sin with their eyes, and so they would always look down, and they would never look at another woman. And so apparently they ran into stuff, and they would bleed, and they called them bleeding <laughs> Pharisees. That's the, God's not saying be socially awkward, like, like when, when the new intern at work comes up and says, hi, my name is so-and-so, you're like, yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. Right? But to say in your mind, okay, this is someone created in the image of God. This is someone's daughter. This will be someone's wife. Right? And to, to refocus the attention. We're to root out all desires that could grow up into some kind of external sinful act, whether they are a desire for comfort. Right? That is the, the longing for pleasure, where they are a desire for approval, a longing to be accepted or desired, the longing for control. Everything has to go according to my plan, and if it doesn't, I will explode in anger. Right? No, we dig down and we root that out, we throw it away. The longing for power, influence, or recognition. When you find a leech or a tick on yourself, it has to come off. When the doctor says, you've got cancer or you've got a blockage, they need to go in there and they need to dig it out. The eye needs to come out. The hand needs to come off. There will be pain associated with this maiming. You might need to tell your friends, I can't go see that movie. Why? You can blame your parents, kids, right? Or you can be bold and you can say, I've decided that it would not be good for me 
to consume that. I'm not the world's greatest cook, you know. Uh, I, I, I know quite a bit about pots, though, on the stove boiling. And, um, and, and so, so one of the things that I've observed as, as, as the, 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 the spaghetti water is like boiling over, you know, and it's, it's going to do that frothy thing where the froth boils over the top and goes everywhere. You know, the lid should stop that, I think. Right? You know, the lid should be tough enough that it doesn't erupt, but it does, like a volcano, and it goes all over the place. What I have learned is, is if you sit there and you, like, try to mop the water up, it keeps coming out. What you need to do is to take it off of the heat source. Ta-da! <laughs> and that's what we need to do with our sin. You're like, I'm tempted in this area or that area. The temptation is great. It's like, it's a, it's a boiling fire. Remove the heat source. Right? If it's, if it's I lust, like stop turning on shows full of garbage. If you are dissatisfied with where you are in your life, stop consuming that which makes you covet other people's stuff. You cut off the source. And then, as John Stott says, you make a decision to go about as if maimed. And Jesus would say this, I believe, you are free to choose your own path. But do you really want to go to hell with two eyeballs? Is that what you want? I'm here. At least I can see what's going to happen for the rest of eternity. Right? That's crazy. And so we take the words of Scripture that urge us to holiness, to heart. The book Song of Solomon, which speaks of, of proper romantic love over and over. The king in the book commands those around him. He says, I command you that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Right? Keep desires in check. We live in a culture that says, if you want it, that's right, go for it. That is not okay. How many of us have thought while we're driving, like, I will just drive this car into the back of that other car? <laughs> that is a bad desire. Don't do that, right? If you value driving or your car or other people thinking that you're sane, you can't just do everything that you feel. When it comes to desire, think of it, think of it like a wild animal. Like, are you afraid of being bit by dogs? Yes, probably a good idea not to poke them with sticks. If, if you're all the way over here and you're like, ah, it's just a small desire, I'll just give in. But over here, you're like, I'm going to be crying before the Lord saying, God, forgive me. I've sinned. I'm never going to do that again. You, you, you stop it here. Right? You don't, you don't wake it up. You, you cut it off. And so we're to, to cut off the source that feeds and we're to cut off the offensive actions. John Stott says, the things that you do are your hands. Realize you can't engage in that kind of sin anymore because you have maimed yourself. I can't. I can't go to the places I used to because, as Jesus says in another passage in the book of Matthew, that, that you, he says, cut off your feet as well if necessary. I can't go there anymore. I'm lame. 
Now here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus begins to preach in Matthew 4, 17, and he begins to preach saying this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is not perfection that earns us righteousness before God. It's seeing our sin and saying, God, save me from myself. We repent. And when we repent, what happens? God gives us the gift of righteousness in Christ. When we look to Jesus and we say, that's all the righteousness that I need. I can't, I can't act it myself. I have sinned. I repent. He gives us what Christ earned by living a perfect life. And then we are supposed to, as the Bible says, pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Christ is the root of all that we have. He is the foundation stone. We have no righteousness of our own. But if he is in us, if the spirit is there, then we will begin to live in a more and more righteous way as time goes on. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the matter of the house, ready for every good work. I think we have the newest, youngest member of our family here today, little Kellum, right? Think about the most precious item in that home right now, right? Anything associated with him, right? You know? Nobody touches his stuff. You don't, you don't mess with that stuff. Why? Because it's the baby's stuff. You know, we don't just throw our dirty clothes into the baby's crib as if it were a hamper. No, that's to be pristine and pure. Because the firstborn doesn't go anywhere near germs, right? You know? The fourthborn, if the, if the binky falls on the floor of the New York City subway, you pick it off, wipe it on your shirt, and put it back in the kid's mouth, right? sanctified and holy. We're to cleanse ourselves from anything that's dishonorable, not out of fear of punishment, but out of devotion and love for the Lord. Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful, youthful passions, pursue righteousness, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You will fail in this battle if you say, I will not think or do this thing ever again. Instead, two recommendations. First, remember your identity. You are in Christ. If you put your faith and trust in him. If you have said, I can't stand on my own merits, I need Christ, then you are in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. What you needed to do in the past, what you couldn't escape, you are now free to walk away from because that person, that heart, that desire is dead. But you have to believe that it's so. Set your mind on things above. That's the second thing. Fill the mind with good and evil must go elsewhere. This is the principle. If you take that coffee pot full of, of dark, old, burnt, nasty, what they call cowboy coffee, reheated, right? And you put it underneath the spigot and you turn the water on and walk away and you come back in like two minutes, there will be nothing but clean water in there because you have overwhelmed it with, with the good, with the clean, with the pure. If you've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. 
think about God more and sin less. Turn your mind to God. I'll tell you what, it's amazing how much I ever ignored the backyard and the front yard until I have kids. And now I'm like, kids, safety. Where's my kids? Where's my kids? Where's my kids? Where's my kids? Right? Your priorities change. Your thoughts change. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, think about that, your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then Paul picks up and says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If your mind goes there, will there be room for all the other stuff? Here comes a thought. That's okay. Just drive it out with another one. Turn your mind to the things of God. And then finally, take action. Speak to the self. Speak words of God to yourself. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Stop it, heart. Cut it out. Go away. I'm going to go do and think about something else and move on. And yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. Jesus compares it to tearing out your eye or cutting off your hand, but it is possible. As we close, I'm going to pray, but I do want to offer to you, if you are battling and wrestling with a sin, the Bible promises you that, that you are not being overcome by something that's not common to man. The devil often makes you think that you are alone. And you are not. Everyone in this room, although they will admit it or not, is kind of like you. We all struggle with different things. We all struggle. So if you've got something that you have not been able to beat on your own, come and let's talk. You don't have to come forward. You can send me an email and say, I'd like to get some coffee. And maybe we'll talk about something. Like, I'll know. I'll be like, okay, cool. Let's talk about it. But get some help. And then second, if you are bearing your sins yourself, put your faith and trust in Christ and repent. Let's close in prayer. Father, you have said in your word that you, the God of hope, would fill us with all joy and peace in believing. And so we pray that faith would grow in our hearts and minds. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in hope. Father, you have made it possible for us to overcome our sins and to fight for righteousness. You've given us righteousness in Christ, but you've also given us the possibility of living a separated, sanctified, holy life. And that is a difficult thing, and it requires radical moral self-denial, not a surgical degree. But just saying yes to you on a consistent basis and denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following. We pray for grace in the battle against temptation. Father, I pray that anyone who is here who feels like they have committed some kind of unpardonable sin, that they would take refuge in the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and you forgive sin and cleanse from all unrighteousness. We can be right in your eyes. Sin will not be master over us because we're not under law, but under grace. We can be free. So, Father, I pray that we would heed the words of Jesus and say, yes, they are good 
and right. We ought to believe them. We ought to live consistently with them. I pray that you'd encourage all who struggle deeply, Father, and help them to see that the fight is evidence of victory and not of failure. The Holy Spirit is there, and he is winning. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.